the male genius and you know however terrible that person is and and however many people have to suffer from their terrible behavior we we have to somehow accept it and and even like you know revere them because supposedly they're giving so much genius to the world stop it like you know <laughs> And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with return guest and my favorite historian, Thomas Zimmer. Thomas is a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, where he teaches 20th century U.S. and international history with a focus on the transatlantic history of democracy. He is also an author, the host of the amazing Is This Democracy podcast, and the creator of the Substack newsletter, Democracy Americana. He is currently working on two book projects, A History of Polarization Since the 1960s, and a book entitled White America's Fear of Liberal Democracy. He writes a regular column for The Guardian about past, present, and possible futures of American democracy, and I really wanted to have him on today to discuss where we are in America post-midterms. Thomas's insight is always eye-opening, and I wanted to share his brilliance with you, my amazing audience. So without further ado, please welcome back my guest, author, historian, and Georgetown professor, Thomas Zimmer. Welcome, Thomas. Well, thank you so much for having me back on. Um, that, that's, that's really an honor. It means that, you know, the first time, can't, it couldn't have been all bad because I guess in that case, you, you wouldn't have invited me back on. So No I'm way, really, man. Really, thank you yeah. for joining me again. I love the way of your course. brain works. I love the way your brain works, even if I don't always love what you're saying, because sometimes I find it deeply distressing. Um, but... <laughs> We're in a precarious time in America. And for those of us who see it for what it is, we're often treated like a bit of a downer because in reality, when you start sounding the alarm, it upsets people. But I'm not doing it to upset people. You're not doing it to upset people. We're doing it to inspire and instigate change. Like if I tell you the bridge is out, that's not designed to make you mad. That's intended to inspire you to get a group together to fix it. And I think that's where we're at. Yeah, I also don't just don't know what else I'm supposed to do, right? It's it's literally the only thing I can contribute in any way is to try and offer my, you know, to, to the best of my abilities, offer my analysis of what's going on. And I agree that right now that more often than not means it's not great, right? So yeah, I get it. Like I get a lot of people, someone said, you know what, man, reading your stuff is, um, what is it? Um, it's necessary, but totally depressing. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so sorry, I'm really man. really sorry. <laughs> I know. It's like we're both Debbie Downers, like, wah, wah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, listen, we just had the midterm elections. And even though a lot of us see that as being more positive than we expected, you had a different take, right? And you believe that we should look at these results as being quite negative. Because although the pro-democracy forces did okay, the results only highlight this growing divide between red and blue America. I mean, you just said recently in your podcast, you don't need to know that much about the Civil War to know that there are some very concerning echoes here. Yeah, so you know what? I was also pleasantly surprised by by the outcome, right? I was expecting worse. It could have been so much worse. So I, I do not want to let the pendulum swing all the way from things are looking better than we feared to, oh my God, it's just doom and gloom. But I am feeling worse about the state of things now than I did immediately after the election. Um, because I think not enough people are paying attention to how much these election results represent a widening chasm between the two Americas, the red and, and the blue, right? So in blue and purple states, a clear majority of people came out mobilized against not just Trump, but sort of the reactionary vision that animates the American right, that sort of white Christian patriarchal order, right? And so here you had a vast majority of people rejecting uh, rejecting abortion bans or the threat of abortion being banned where they lived and they voted Democratic, right? But in red states, we have a different picture and I don't think people are paying quite enough attention to that. In red states, you still had a majority of people against abortion bans specifically. And we saw this with the abortion ballot measures, right? So early in the year, we had one in Kansas and that was rejected. And then we had one in Kentucky on election day and that was rejected. But what's interesting is that a lot of these people still voted Republican, right? So we have a very significant percentage in red states that said, no, if you ask us specifically about abortion bans, we don't want those. 
But faced with a choice between Democrats and Republicans, we will still support Republicans because overall, apparently, they favor the reactionary vision over what the the Democrats stand for, which is multiracial pluralistic democracy. So, you know, many red states are getting redder, right? They're getting more deeply red. And I think this is really a stark reminder of how much the country is falling apart, um, how much we are looking at fundamentally incompatible visions for what America should be, right? So again, nationally, yes, blue America, quote unquote, blue America has, um, you know, the, the the support of a numerical majority. And there is a stable anti-MAGA coalition in blue and, and purple states. But a significantly portion of the country is just not on board with the vision of egalitarian multiracial pluralism. And my concern, my big concern coming out of these elections is how do you do democracy in such a country? How do you keep that together? And I just don't, you know, that is highly concerning to me. Um, And so, yes, it could have been worse, but that is concerning. Yeah, I mean, as a historian who focuses on democracy, I mean, you're saying that we're fundamentally living two incompatible visions for America. And how do you move forward with that? Like, how can you be united if there's no unity between those two sides? And this isn't just like a cultural difference between North and South. It's having those cultural differences enshrined into state law, where some people are growing up with different facts and different books and different laws. And red states that have been read for a long time have been able to change those laws and drag people backwards using that power. So they're banning books, they're undermining gay people, they're demonizing trans people, they're dictating what children can learn in school in direct contrast to what's going on in blue states that are becoming increasingly more diverse, more progressive, more open-minded. So, I mean, your question is a good one. Like, how do those two Americas coexist, right? I mean, look, I think we often kind of sanitize the political conflict because we like to pretend that we all want the same thing, the best for the country and for all the people who live here, and we only disagree over what is the best way to get there, right? So we like to pretend that we're just having a fight over tax policy or government spending or regulations. But in reality, these policy discussions are almost always infused with or even dominated by this underlying struggle between those fundamentally incompatible ideas of what America should be. And that has always shaped the American project really since the beginning, right? I mean, for some the nation was supposed to be defined by this idea that, quote, all men are created equal. That's what it says in the Declaration of Independence. And as men uh, became people, right, the vision here was America as a place where the individual status would not be determined by race, religion, gender, gender orientation, sexual orientation. But there has never been a consensus around such egalitarian ideas because there have always been those who did not think America was defined by such an idea, was not you know, defined by this kind of what you might call civic nationalism, right? But was actually supposed to be a place of and for white Christians, a place where white Christian men specifically had a right to be at the top, right? And at its core, right, the country has always been divided between those who envision America as sort of a beacon of democratic equality and those who see it as, first and foremost, a land of and for white Christians. And those competing visions really shaped the conflict we are having over how much democracy and for whom, right? Because, you know, those who have always wanted to restrict and confine democracy, right? They want to make sure that democracy would never undermine what they see as the natural and or divinely ordained, depending on who you ask, um, order of sort of white Christian patriarchy. And and, and on the other side, you have those who envision uh, America as a truly egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. So again, Um, You know, we're having a discussion not over just tax policy, regulations, whatever. We're having a discussion over who gets to participate as equals in the political process, who gets to define what does and does not count as America and American and who gets to be at the top. Right. And look, and if you think, hey, what is this guy talking about? American project history, whatever. Just look at the political agenda of the two major parties and look at what is happening at the state level. I mean, you said it, right? Like, if you think what I'm what I'm talking about here is way too abstract, okay, just look at the state level. The kind of society that Republicans are creating 
wherever they are in power, is decidedly not an egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. It is not supposed to be a society in which the individual status is independent of race, religion, gender, gender orientation, sexual orientation. It is a vision of white patriarchal dominance, right? And again, not just in politics, by the way, but in all spheres of life, in the family, in the workplace, in the public square. And they are determined to impose that vision on the entire country. That is the conflict that we are having. Yeah, it's a major conflict. I mean, the right wing is clearly not on board for this egalitarian vision. In fact, they seem dead set on preventing that from becoming reality, even though we have the Statue of Liberty saying, bring me your tired, your poor, you know, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And we have all men are created equal. And we have, you know, America, the place where anyone from anywhere can make it if they work hard enough. You know, that is not actually what they're on board for. And if they're not going to get what they want, it seems as if they would be willing to abolish democracy altogether if it means solidifying their vision. I mean, you have pointed out from the beginning that what democracy meant before civil rights legislation in the 60s was completely different than what we think of when we say democracy today. That the country was fairly democratic before the 60s if you happened to be a white Christian man. And if you were something else, it wasn't that democratic. And so since the the civil rights movement, the question has become exactly what you're saying, which is whether or not America would realize some vision of this equal under the law, equal democracy, egalitarian, pluralistic, multicultural democracy where all people are truly created equal, or if we keep the same people who were always at the top at the top. And that's essentially the central issue of our political conflicts right now, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and and look, I mean, you phrased it as a question, would they go (laughs) so far as to actually abolish democracy. I mean, that's clearly the choice they've made, right? Because, look, the American right, their their allegiance has never been to democratic ideals. Their allegiance has always been to, at some points in history, they called it just Christian civilization. At some points in history, they've started calling it white Christian whatever, nation, right? Um, That is where their allegiance lies. And if that comes in conflict with democracy then it's not, you know, the white Christian civilization that has to go. It is democracy that has to go. That is the choice right. they've made. And, you know, I I just don't see any line that they wouldn't cross um, to uphold that. Because, again, they are convinced, and I, I really think uh, that the, the better way to understand the political conflict in general is not to assume that everybody is just... I don't know, lying or pretending. The, the better way to assu- is is to assume that most people actually believe in what they are doing and are somewhat sincere about what they're doing. And that means they really believe there is a natural order and or a divinely ordained order, if you ask the religious right. And they believe that it is their duty um, to uphold that, right? And so who cares about the rule of law and democracy and all that, right? It has to go. Yeah. Well, you talk a lot about the permission structure, right? This permission structure that the right has given themselves to accomplish their goals. They've given themselves permission to radicalize by constantly playing on the idea that the left has already radicalized. It's this giant projection to achieve a desired result. Like the Republicans want the Democrats to be seen as the radical dangerous ones. So they're constantly pointing fingers like the radical left, these pedophiles, communists, socialists, baby killers, election stealers. And the goal is to pretend and to get people to believe that we're the threat that needs to be stopped when in truth, it's a projection the Republicans are using to serve their own desires. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's probably worth, um, addressing why it's even why it even matters to ask that question how are they giving themselves permission to do what they are doing right Right. because you know again what we're talking about is they're radicalizing against democracy they're openly declaring the political opponent illegitimate so biden is an illegitimate president they're openly embracing extremism and extremist people right so again how are they giving themselves permission for all that because i think it's important the question is important because look no one looks in the mirror in the morning and says yep, we are the bad guys. (laughs) Um, Or like, you know, no one looks in the mirror before going to bed and says, yep, we are the aggressors. We are the power hungry cynics. 
that's not how human psychology ever works, right? So we all need to justify our actions, right? And so I think the the underlying permission structure on the right is always the same. They're constantly playing up the idea that the quote-unquote left, which is a very vague term, right, um, is already engaged in a violent assault on America, and that needs to be answered in kind. Um, every time I mention how the right is embracing the threat of political violence, um, I get a like just just a flurry of you know where are, where were you when those barbarians like those woke barbarians destroyed Portland? <laughs> that sort of reply. It's always Portland, by the I way. I know Portland's like it's apparently I, I've been to Portland it's, since it's, BLM, and it's, I ate it at some lovely restaurants. It's perfectly fine. No, no, it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. Sorry, um, sorry, Thomas. It's gone. It's completely wiped from the earth. Completely wiped. Yes. So, yeah. so in this worldview, right? We, quote unquote, we are. I'm, I'm I'm talking from the conservative worldview, right? We are the sole proponents of quote unquote real America, and we are constantly being victimized, made to suffer under the yoke of crazy leftist politics. We are besieged by un-American forces of leftism, right? And so we have to fight back by whatever means, right? In the minds of the right, right? Whatever one of quote unquote us may have done, they are worse, right? Woke liberals are out to destroy real America. They're trying to take away what is rightfully ours, right? So we are entitled to rule in this land and they must be stopped. And that is how, again, they're giving themselves permission to embrace whatever radical measure um, is is deemed necessary to defeat this un-American enemy. And, you know, again, like if the nation is under, like if you really believe, right, if you truly believe the nation is under acute threat, Nothing is beyond the pale to defend it. Democracy, the rule of law, who cares, right? In the minds of conservatives, right-wingers, they are never the aggressors. They're always the ones under assault, under siege, right? They're building up this supposedly totalitarian threat from the left, and it allows them to justify their actions within that sort of long-established framework of conservative self-victimization. They're always the victims, right? And in what is what I find so concerning is that this permission structure does not allow for moderation. It doesn't allow for lines that can't be crossed. It has proven remarkably adaptable, right? It is fully capable of handling even the most outlandish actions, right? Even the most outlandish transgressions, even crimes, all the stuff that Donald Trump does, it can easily be accommodated in this sort of permission structure, right? Um, and, you know, I sometimes get the question, oh, do you really think they truly believe this, right? About the left, the quote unquote left, or are, are they just using these ideas opportunistically? And I think the question is somewhat besides the point. I mean, the key is to acknowledge that this established permission structure, it works because it fits and confirms the right's overall wor worldview. And there is no line that they won't give themselves permission to cross. At least that line has not occurred yet. And that is concerning. It's incredibly concerning. Okay, strap in. It's the holiday season, and I want to make sure you guys get some great gifts for your people. It's so important to give a gift that says, I put some thought into this. I know you'll like it. I know you, and I care enough to give you something really good. It's also pretty nice if you can get a gift that not only makes someone happy, but gives back at the same time. A gift that supports nonprofits or charitable organizations, or is good for the planet. The Politics Girl podcast tries really hard to support brands that not only have great products, but amazing missions. That's why I'm so pleased to be paired with Thrive Cosmetics. Thrive Cosmetics is an incredible beauty and skincare line made with clean, skin-loving ingredients with no parabens, sulfates, or phthalates. Thrive is 100% vegan and cruelty-free, so you know no animals were harmed while making it. But they also put the word cause in the name for a reason, because every purchase you make supports organizations that help communities thrive. I'm obsessed with their products. Their Liquid Lash Extension Mascara is my go-to mascara. And this is coming from someone who takes her mascara incredibly seriously. If you didn't hear me say it before, my friend Tori and I had a mascara club for years. We would send it to each other, no matter where we lived, just to say, you gotta try this. And now I fundamentally use Thrive 90% of the time. There's a reason it has more than 20,000 five-star reviews. It mimics the look of lash extensions without damaging your lashes. It cleans like a dream. It just peels off with warm water. And it supports longer, stronger, healthier lashes over time. That's all day wear, no clumping, no smudging, no flaking, no raccoon eyes. And you don't even need soap, let alone makeup remover to get it off. I'm telling you it's the ultimate stocking stuffer, perfect little treat or add-on gift. You could even bundle it together and go with the brilliant eye brightener, hydrating lip tint, or waterproof eyeliner. There's literally no shortage of amazing products at Thrive Cosmetics. And with their bigger than beauty mission, for every product purchased, Thrive donates to one of their over 300 giving partners across the country. 
So celebrate the season of giving and try Thrive Cosmetics today. Right now, you can get up to 45% off their best-selling products when you purchase select holiday gift sets by visiting thrivecosmetics.com slash politicsgirl. That's Thrive Cosmetics, spelled C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash politicsgirl to start shopping for holiday sets. I'm telling you, this is a great company. These are fantastic products. Buy it for yourself or for someone on your list and know that you're helping out others in the process. I mean, isn't that the spirit of the season after all? To keep with the spirit of giving, our next sponsor is Bombas. Bombas makes gifting easy with socks and underwear and t-shirts that not only feel good, but like our last sponsor, do good. Because with every item you purchase, Bombas donates another item to someone in need. And I know what you're thinking, Lee, how are socks a good gift? They're the quintessential bad gift. No, they're not. You just weren't giving the right socks. My family has been wearing Bombas for well over five years. We didn't start using them when they sponsored the show. Our drawers were already filled with their products. And every holiday, we restock. We have their short socks, their medium socks, athletic socks, snowboard socks, hiking socks. I just ordered my husband some compression socks. Bombas uses top shelf material like premium cotton and ultra soft, never itchy merino wool in their socks and t-shirts. And did you know that socks and t-shirts and underwear are the three most requested items from homeless shelters? Well, Bombas did, which is why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So you buy a t-shirt and someone in a homeless shelter gets a t-shirt. You buy some socks and someone in need gets some socks. It's not just lip service. Bombas has donated over 75 million items of clothing. That's a whole lot of comfort and a whole bunch of good. So give the gift of good this holiday season with Bombas. Go to bombas.com slash politicsgirl and use code politicsgirl for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash politicsgirl. Code politicsgirl for 20% off. It's so easy to do these sponsor spots when you really love the products. Trust is an important thing and you can trust I'm not steering you wrong. Bombas dot com slash politics girl code politics girl and you all, you point out you know you're saying like they no one gets up in the morning and looks in the mirror and they're like well I'm the bad guy right and I think that you you speak to that when you talk about uh people saying to you like who cares about Marjorie Taylor Greene like she's a troll she's a clown you know and you say okay well yeah that while that might be true that doesn't mean she's harmless or the ideas or the forces behind her won't sweep democracy away if they get a chance I mean you pointed out in some of your recent writing that in every western civilization western civilization there's always had far-right extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But it's the fact that the Republican Party is embracing and elevating her and people like her that is a serious threat to democracy. Because, I mean, two years ago, she had to be removed from all her committees for her anti-Semitism and her extremist behavior. And now she's basically the face of the party, right? Her extremism is increasingly one in the same with one of our major political parties. They're no longer expelling her. They're elevating her. And we should see that as a Real alarm bell sounding. Look, I'm I'm as tired of talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene as anybody. <laughs> um, and yet, and yet, right, ignoring her and her extremism will just not work because you said it. Her extremism is increasingly that of the Republican Party itself. There is certainly a calculating quality to what she does, to her polemics, right? Um, and all the whatever, whatever she's up to. Um, she clearly enjoys the public attention. And in, you know, and if if what's on display here. If that were just the extremist rhetoric of like a fringe figure, it would indeed be best to simply ignore her. But that it's it's actually much worse. I mean, again, um, she's not just a right wing troll. I mean, she is that too, but she's not just that, right? Um, she's a Republican elected official in good standing with the rest of her party, and ignoring that, ignoring her won't work. I mean, she. And people like her. It's not just her. It's 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 her and people like her. They're in a position of influence and fully intent on using that power, right? And so again, um, in today's Republican Party, she's not being expelled. She's being elevated, and that's partly because GOP elites, I think, understand that most of the energy and most of the the, the activism is precisely on the far right um, that stands behind her and extremists like her. Um, but it's also indicative of a more openly militant form of white Christian nationalism inserting itself firmly at the center of the of Republican politics. And more generally, it's a manifestation of how far 
uh, the conservative mainstream has radicalized, right? Because it's not just um, a matter of the Republican Party tolerating this. Um, it's not just cowardice or acquiescence or whatever. We, what we need to grapple with is that this sort of radicalism is widely seen as justified on, on the right and within the Republican Party. That is the problem, right? Not um, perhaps with the exact language Green uses, which I think strikes many Republicans as too crass or whatever, right? And they're somewhat uncomfortable with that and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it's it, it's obviously not enough to break with her. And in fact, you know, what she's saying has been fully normalized on the right, because again, not in the exact formulation she uses um, necessarily, but certainly in substance. And right. that's that's certainly true for her extremist Christian nationalism um, and for her embrace of political violence, right? Again, the, the reason why so many Republicans are willing to embrace Green um, and her extremism is that her core message is fully in line with what has become dogma on the right. Democrats are widely seen as a radical, dangerous, quote-unquote, un-American threat that has to be stopped by whatever means. And, you know, that's that's also what she's saying. And, you know, ignoring that won't work and laughing at it won't work. We have to grapple with what that actually means and what it tells us about the Republican Party. Yeah, no, honestly. I mean, after watching the Republican response to the insurrection, I mean, not on the day, because on the day they, the major Republican people were kind of shocked, but then they doubled down, right? Like they, they closed ranks. Or what recently happened to Paul Pelosi? I mean, it's clearly an embrace of political violence that's becoming normalized by them. And I think you're making a good point to say that we can't be lulled into this false sense of security that these are unserious people saying unserious things, right? Like Donald Trump wasn't a serious person and he became president. And you point out all the time that some of history's most successful authoritarians were considered, you know, goons, fools when they came around and they ended up in power because no one took them seriously until it was too late. I mean, look, these people are ridiculous. I'm not saying they're not ridiculous. They We're absolutely not that. are. They absolutely like, the, are. But that's yes, not the point. The, <laughs> no, the, the problem is that there's just no natural law that democracy can't be brought down by ridiculous people, right? Yeah. Because it, it has happened before and, and that can absolutely happen and again this is the problem right it's not to say she's not ridiculous it's to or trump is not ridiculous it is to say well that will not save us right that is the problem there's no again like that this that would be a false sense of security the clownishness the ridiculousness the outrageousness of it all well you know again i mean you said it like some of history's most successful authoritarians were clowns and buffoons until they became clowns and buffoons in power and then that was a problem so you know we have to grapple with that. Yeah, we do. And we also have to grapple with the fact that calling out Republican hypocrisy doesn't work because they don't seem to care if they appear hypocritical. Like saying you're pro-life, but doing nothing to how when children are being slaughtered en masse in their classrooms or allowing women to die of treatable pregnancy complications, it's not really pro-life at all. But at the end of the day, when it comes to their underlying political project, which is maintaining traditional hierarchies and upholding white Christian patriarchal power, you argue that Republicans are actually pretty consistent. They're not at all hypocritical. They're pretty straightforward with what they want. Yeah, I'm generally skeptical that hypocrisy is a helpful criticism or like a helpful lens through which to approach the, the political conflict. Look, is it hypocritical that... um? People who consider themselves value voters and say they staunchly oppose abortion under all circumstances are still supporting Herschel Walker in Georgia. Of course, it is hip <laughs> hypocritical, right? Yes, Very of course. But I think what is more important, right, on the level of the underlying political project, conservatives are remarkably consistent, right? The GOP is the party of maintaining traditional hierarchies of upholding white Christian patriarchal order. And I think the whole pro-life thing it's it's a good example of how stark how these sort of stark surface level hypocrisies um are regard are disregarded as long as the actions in question are just fully consistent with the underlying political project right um i find political conservatives to be mostly very principled um it's just that the principle the principles are not <laughs> what they are claiming they are right this is that's the thing right so in this case right the principle is we want a society 
in which a man has unquestioned authority over the lives and bodies of those around him, right? So, you know, the, ult the ultimate example of this, by the way, of course, <laughs> is conservatives uniting behind Trump and sticking with him during the 2016 election campaign. I mean, it made a complete mockery of most of their stated principles, right? But in many ways, Trump embodied the underlying project, right? Trump being caught on tape, bragging about sexually assaulting women, that certainly made a lot of conservatives uncomfortable, right? Um, but simply because it was so crass. Um, but then again... <laughs> It was not at all a betrayal of what he promised, right? He had promised an unabashed defense of white patriarchal order, right? And again, much of Donald Trump's attractiveness to conservatives, predominantly but not exclusively men, white men, stemmed from the fact that he promised to elevate a kind of, sort of toxic patriarchal alphaness, right? And, and made its defense against quote-unquote woke assaults the centerpiece of his agenda. And again, just like with Trump's overt racism, it was precisely the fact that he was so unabashedly quote-unquote alpha in this particularly ridiculous, toxic way, right? So openly sexist, so unabashedly misogynistic that endeared him to these kinds of people. Like what they saw was finally someone who would fight back, right? Someone standing up for us like proper alpha males. Um, so again, Trump's promise in this perspective was the restoration of white Christian patriarchal glory and, you know, the, 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 the fact that he himself was unhealthy, unfit, immoral, it didn't matter. What mattered was the political promise. It was the promise to lash out against the enemies of patriarchal rule, the liberals, those annoying feminists, the better males like me, you know. Um, so what these people voted for was the Trump of MAGA iconography. I'm sure we've all seen those, like, ridiculous paintings where he's like, he looks like John Rambo from the <laughs> Sylvester Stallone movies. But that's, you know, that's the thing. That's that's the promise. And, and nothing he did, like no, again, no sexual assault of women, whatever, was, again, going against that promise. And so, like, overall, I think emphasizing these hypocrisies on the surface, right, um, is usually not very helpful. It's certainly not when dealing with the American right, because the danger to democracy is not the hypocrisy, right? The hypocrisy is annoying, but that's not the danger. It's the underlying political project to which conservatives are actually fully and consistently committed. That is the danger to democracy. Yeah, this higher truth, what they really stand for. That's the danger, you know, that despite the fact that Trump kind of makes a mockery of everything they claim to stand for, he actually stood up for everything they actually stand for, which is sort of top-down patriarchal order, you know, alpha men in charge, this antithesis of, you know, the woke political correctness, this idea that everyone deserves to be treated with respect. Trump was kind of like, yeah, fuck that. You know, this girl's too ugly to rape and these Muslims can't come in and uh, don't send us anyone from these shithole countries and Mexicans are rapists and murderers. Just shoot these peaceful protesters. They're in my way. And a lot of people were like, yeah, like America, bah! you know, like that was what they wanted, right? He's essentially as like you said, as racist as they wanted to be, as misogynistic, as xenophobic. And his rise to the presidency was kind of like a bat signal to the whole group of people, particularly men, particularly white men, that could finally kind of reassert their dominance over these lesser beings that have been given too much of a voice. I mean, you believe in, in your writing, it, you, you've written about how conservatism starts from the premise that some groups are worthy of protection and deserve privilege, while others are deviant and must be kept in check. And you've said that once we acknowledge that as conservatism's highest principle, all of their behavior starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think that's a crucial point. I think the best way to illustrate this is by looking at conservative law and order politics. Um, I mean, look at the stark contrast between conservatives' stated law and order preferences, right? And the way they remain <laughs> united behind Donald Trump, one of the most unlawful politicians in, in recent memory, right? Um but that's a useful reminder of what law and order has always meant on the right. I mean, again, if you ask the question, how can the self-proclaimed party of law and order, which they've been for since the 60s, Forever. basically, yeah. <laughs> uh, support someone who so clearly, clearly does not care about the law? 
and even explicitly demand, by the way, he be exempted from the law as they did, yeah. you know, in the summer when, you know, remember all these hysterical reactions to the FBI searching Mar-a-Lago, right? And they, they were like, oh, he has to be exempt from all of this. Again, and, and, and this goes back to the hypocrisy point, describing that as hypocrisy is entirely correct while also missing the larger point, right? Calling for the law to treat different groups differently is hypocritical only if you believe in equality before the law, but conservatives don't, right? That's the thing. Right, like, right. Demanding Trump must be above the law is an exacerbation, but not an aberration from Republican politics. Entrenching a system that is predicated on the inequality before the law has always been the core of the conservative law and order doc doctrine, right? There's a stark differentiation between those who are supposed to be bound by the rules, that is them, quote-unquote them, and those who are not, that is us, quote unquote us, that has always been very much at the heart of the conservative political project and the right's worldview. It, it's a clear political, social and cultural hierarchy that justifies and actually necessitates differential and, and discriminatory treatment, right? Conservatives start from the premise again, and you said it, some groups are worthy of protection and deserve privilege. Others are deviant, dangerous, and they need to be kept in check. And again, like if you start there, what you see is no longer hypocrisy. It's a very consistent political project, right? In all these cases, the brutal, like truly brutal hypocrisy is disregarded because all these actions are fully consistent with conservatism's higher truth. I, I've started, you know, capital H, capital T, higher truth, right? Um, if it helps to entrench white Christian patriarchal dominance, it can't be wrong. If it undermines traditional elite rule, it must be illegitimate. That is the principle, right? It's not the stated principle, but it is the underlying sort of higher truth. So we need to be honest with ourselves that one political party, but a significant amount of our country is just not on board for this idea of everyone is created equal and everyone gets equal rights under the law. It's just not what they want. They want a Christian dominated white patriarchal society where everyone conforms. And the question is, do they have enough power or at least enough levers of power to make that stick. I mean, you point out that even if Trump goes down for one of his many crimes, which I believe he will, it's not like we cut the head off the snake. As you said in one of your Twitter feeds, there are so many snakes here. Yeah, I mean, look, Trump, it all goes back to this. Trump, the rise of Trumpism is a symptom. It's not the disease. Um, he himself is a result, but not the cause of the anti-democratic radicalization of the American right. Um, there is, I think, this dogma of white innocence that still shapes the political discourse and sanitizes it by, by declaring that whatever the political choices and actions of white Americans, they can't be blamed. They can't be held responsible. We must presume benign motives and reach for sort of non-incriminating explanations, right? They're, they're powerful incentives to sort of sanitize the political choices of white conservative Christians. And usually the way we do this is, you know, the, the way we sort of, you know, tell these apologist tales is, you know, we, we say, oh, they didn't mean to, um, they, they didn't really mean to support this specific political project, or they had to support it for, for some reason. The, the didn't mean to line of apologism, that often describes the extremists who who, who gather significant uh, support from, from, from mostly white people as brilliant demagogues who managed to like deceive and seduce innocent Americans, this is where it's where it's really convenient to make it all about Trump, right? Um, you describe him as some kind of like political genius, uh, a genius demagogue. And, you know, and then you can say, hey, what chance did these poor people have who voted yeah. for him? They, they encountered such evil genius. What, what can they do, right? And then there's the, they had no choice but to support extremism variant. That deflects blame by pretending uh, white Americans have no political agency, like they're driven by they're driven by economic anxiety or by anti-elite backlash, or it's just a reaction to liberals being mean. Um, something, something, right? Um, it made them do it, right? Um, and how dare anyone judge them because, you know, something or someone made them do it. And I think just look back at the past 60 years or so, whenever people rode waves of racial and cultural resentment to political prominence, their success has been described in such terms, like when George Wallace was surprisingly successful in the presidential run in 1968, or when David Duke uh, nearly became a senator in 1990 in Louisiana. You have all these tales. Um, why, you know, 
it absolutely you, you cannot blame these poor people who voted for these people i mean forget all that right just forget it right take people's political choices seriously assume that those who voted for trump who are still behind trump or more generally a radicalizing republican party understand exactly who and what they are supporting and accept that you know that's the choice they have made i think we would do ourselves a massive favor if we accepted that there really is an actual political conflict, an actual conflict between two opposing visions for American society that cannot be just argued away or messaged away or whatever, right? Um, people like me, by the way, right? So like academic, whatever, liberals, whatever. <laughs> um, we, we, you know, we would love it um, to be a competition between, uh, yeah, just over who has the better arguments, right? Because that's the kind yeah, of fair. struggle that, you know, we feel kind of comfortable with and that we believe we can win, but it's not the kind of conflict we're in. The actual conflict in which we find ourselves is one over fundamentally incompatible visions for society. Um, and by the way, the right understands this very clearly. They, 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 they fully understand and accept this, and we should accept it too and grapple with that. Now, this next sponsor is a bigger ticket item than, say, socks. But if you know anyone like me who really wants to do better by the environment, this is a hell of a gift. We got our Lomi about two months ago, and it's completely changed how we deal with food waste. If you don't know, food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. And if you can reduce the amount of food waste, we can reduce the amount of methane we put into the air. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into dirt in under four hours. There's no smell and it's really quiet. We seem to make so much food waste in our house. And now, instead of throwing it in the garbage, I can put it in the Lomi and turn our waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants or just throw in the garbage. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or make cleaning up after dinner that much easier or look like an eco-genius, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use promo code politicsgirl to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use the promo code politicsgirl at checkout. Turn your food waste into dirt with the press of a button. I swear it has changed the way we function in our kitchen. Lomi.com. Finally, how could I lead up to the holidays without talking about an actual gift website? Do you want to give a present to someone that means something? Do you want to give a present that says, I thought of you, specifically you? Then you want to be shopping at Uncommon Goods. I have so many presents coming from Uncommon Goods, and that's not because they give me a discount. They don't. It's because their website kicks ass. Uncommon Goods has incredible original gifts. You can search gifts by recipient, by age, by relationship. You can type in things the person likes, like Yosemite or whiskey. Uncommon Goods has unique creative gifts, often handmade by independent artists and craftsmen right here in the USA. I wish I could tell you guys what I bought, but everyone I know listens to the show, so I'll just have to tell you about how much they liked it after the holidays. I'm telling you, you can get lost down a rabbit hole at Uncommon Goods because there's so many cool gifts. If you don't want to have to mail or send anything, Uncommon Goods has something called Uncommon Experiences, which includes everything from tarot card readings to mixology and gardening classes. And of course, it wouldn't be exactly me if the company wasn't giving something back. So with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give a dollar to a nonprofit of your choice. So far, they've already donated more than two and a half million dollars. So go to uncommongoods.com slash politicsgirl to get 15% off your next gift. That's uncommongoods.com slash politicsgirl for 15% off. Don't miss out on this incredible website. And don't miss out on people thinking you're an incredible person for buying such a thoughtful gift. Uncommon Goods. As they say, we are all out of the ordinary. I see it as a good thing that Blue America has put down its roots for democracy, for multicultural pluralism, for women's rights, for gay rights, for trans rights. I think this is a good thing. But as you said at the beginning of the episode, you know, Red America is only getting redder. And Blue America might have the numerical majority in this country, but our election apparatus itself is set up to favor Red America. So I guess the question is, like, what do we do about that? You know, how do we fight back? I think this is where my answers get very frustrated for a lot of people because I'm, you know, I, I, I just, I, I do what I can to offer hopefully like some, some, some helpful analysis, but I'm, I do not claim to have all the answers. The fundamental reality of the current political conflict is that 
the many anti-democratic distortions in the constitution and in the political system leave the door open for authoritarian forces and have put them in a position to undermine and subvert democracy on all levels. If America were a functioning democracy, by which I mean a representational system in which people were allowed to participate in the democratic process as equal citizens and gaining majority support from the electorate actually translated into political power, then the situation would be different. But that's not where we are. America would still be in major trouble, by the way, because it's not easy. It's not an easy task to deal with a shrinking but substantial reactionary minority of the population that is just rapidly radicalizing, right? So that would be a problem either way. But at least in a functioning democracy, these forces wouldn't be in a position to prevent functional governments on the federal level and impose their will on, on the country by relying on, you know, red state legislation and then also on the highest court of the country as the sort of reactionary spearhead in, in this struggle right. against multiracial pluralism. So again, the current system of government, it wasn't designed to accommodate multiracial pluralistic democracy. And so it consistently awards, uh, it, 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 it awards disproportionate power to those who are just not on board with that kind of egalitarian democracy. And we need to change that, right? We need to like properly democratize the system, the, the, the structures of the, that make, make up the system. Um, it's either that or democracy will perish against majority will. That's, those, those are the options, I think. Yeah. And I think it's also important you keep saying egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy, which I know we both know is a mouthful, but it's different than just saying democracy. Because when you just say democracy, it's like democracy for who? How much democracy? Like who gets to use it? You know, and so by saying egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy, it, it speaks to the kind of democracy we want where it really is you know, the will of the majority would be heard as opposed to right now what we have is is the ability for a minority to rule us forever, you know? And, you know, it's not just, unfortunately, our election apparatus that favors Red America. Our media does too. And as much as we hear about the liberal media, most of the media is owned by right-wing uh, zealots, by libertarians, and by billionaires. You know, as we close, I'd like to ask you about Twitter, because you've been writing a lot about it lately, um, which was our sort of democratized public square, which is now being currently blown up by its new owner. And you pointed out in one of your recent podcasts that this idea that the richest of the rich can just come in and shut down how the little people can act, where we learn from each other and where we hold the powerful accountable is kind of a terrifying reality, especially in the overall sense of democracy or egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. So, so I'm going to take a deep breath here because this Twitter situation. <laughs> You're like, this Twitter situation, I don't know. The Twitter situation is an absolute disaster. I know, um, man. Look, Twitter know. has always been a mess, right? But it, it was also an essential instrument to democratize America or sort of the, you know, the virtual public square. And I think there are two distinct but intertwined uh, problems here or issues here. There is the fact that a tech oligarchy animated by an inherently anti-democratic worldview holds so much power and, and you know, more specifically, right? And then there's the more specific issue that, you know, there there is now this guy who is destroying the world's most important political communications platform. In general, from a democratic perspective, it's just highly problematic that these tech oligarchs are amassing so much power and influence. They're not democratically controlled in any way. There are no checks and balances. They're not guided by any concern for the public good. Um, and what's happening here is not politically neutral, right? Elon Musk has been on a rightward trajectory for quite some time. Um, he shares all the reactionary moral panic concerns over like wokeism and cancel culture. I mean, that was a big reason why he wanted to control Twitter in the first place, right? Because he was like, oh, there's cancel culture. I'm going to stop that. He is another example for this sort of libertarian to right-wing, far-right pipeline. Um, just a reminder that this type of libertarianism has always been driven by a desire for freedom, yes, but what kind of freedom? Freedom from regulation of any kind, to do as they please. That is what people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk want, right? They believe the world works best if you know, they are in charge and they get to do whatever they want, unhampered by 
you know, stupid regulations and demands for equality. How dare anyone, right? Um, it's it's an inherently anti-democratic worldview, and that just tracks very well with the reactionary political project. And you know, and that is why you know you all these people, you know, they eventually gravitate towards the right, and they gravitate also towards autocratic regimes abroad, right? And now again. To bring this back to Twitter, that inherently anti-democratic, anti-egalitarian worldview is now animating the man in charge of the world's most important political communications platform and a virtual public square that functioned as an essential part of democratic culture, right? Twitter, look, again, it's always been a mess, but casually dismissing it as like, oh, Twitter is stupid anyway. What do you care, right? It's not real life, whatever. That's just silly. It's just, it's silly. It's enormously influential. It has, it's, it's had an enormous influence on the broader public media and, and political discourse. Um, it established a conversation between people in positions to shape the political um, um, and public discourse because they're journalists or they're politicians or whatever, with people who would otherwise, without those technolo technological means, never have access to those level of influence, right? I mean, again, you are in many ways the exact example of what I'm talking about, right? Um, and and to a lesser degree, I am too, because like like like, how would you know who I am? Like, yeah, I would never right? have found you. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, again, like people will rightfully say, well, that's that's not the most important part about this, right? No, of um, course, but I Twitter's a public utility, you know, like even yeah. during hurricanes or fires or if you're missing a child or if something terrible is happening, it's these social media sites that allow us connect with each other. It's not just, you know, intellectuals or epidemiologists or these people that we can connect with, which I think is essentially important to connect the public square. But there's a lot that we're going to lose if Twitter goes away. You know, it really limits our access to each other. And I feel like we're almost returning to kind of a feudal or aristocratic system, right? Where certain people live in excess and have everything. And the rest of us are kind of the serfs who only have access to what our overlords allow us to have access to. And those gatekeepers don't get to, they don't have to be criticized by us plebes. You know, like that's what it feels like. I feel like we are regressing in such a major way. But that's exactly what it's about, right? I mean, Twitter has been instrumental in amplifying the voices and demands of traditionally marginalized groups. Um, that's why it really demonstrated its sort of dem democratizing potential. And much of the reactionary moral panic over like cancel culture, right? is precisely a reaction to this, right? Because again... To accountability. Yeah, yeah, I mean, traditionally marginalized groups have gained enough influence and crucially have sort of acquired the technological means to affect the political debate and to make their criticism heard, right? You're talking and about things like Oscars So White or Black Lives yes, Matter or, or me the too. Women's March or Me Too, exactly. Yes, yes. I mean, Twitter has enabled people with absolutely no traditional access to power to speak to powerful elites directly, criticize them in the public square. And you know how effective and valuable this has been is evidenced by the fact that many of those elites are so consistently mad about it and completely <laughs> like consistently bemoaning persecution, right? And again, I think to the extent that traditional uh, societal elites and elite white men in particular face a little more scrutiny today than in the past, and it's not that much, but it's maybe a little more, right? Um, that they have been deprived of their supposed quote unquote right to unquestioned deference and affirmation, Twitter has helped um, democratize public life, right? And losing this, just like you said, that will hurt. It will hurt the attempts to finally make America live up. Um, to the promise of egalitarian uh, 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 democracy to become the democracy it just has never been yet right it, it's a massive failure um that those elected to safeguard democracy have seemingly cared so little about this until yeah. now it's it seems to be too late and it's it's a massive problem it makes me very mad it makes me very mad too because it makes me feel like that lone child's voice that said the emperor has no clothes is what Twitter was. You know, it allowed us to speak to power when everyone else was lying to power. And I do think that the government missed a major opportunity to stop the sale of this important public service to Or us. at least investigate, right? At least yeah. talk about, have that discussion. I'm not qualified to speak to what exactly the legal, political, legislative avenues are that 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 might have been available to do something about this i don't know right but 
that there has there, there's been no discussion, no serious discussion over this. That is the problem. I mean, it was back in April when Elon Musk announced that he would buy Twitter, right? So we had several months um, to talk about, hey, um, are we just going to let this happen? Like, what does that mean? Should we maybe talk about this? And it, it didn't happen. That's a problem. Yeah. I, well, I also think you said it on your podcast, and I thought it was so well said. You said this idea that we all need to sacrifice at the altar of white male genius needs to stop. You know, that these people cannot be questioned, particularly this these men of the tech world, this tech oligarchy we've allowed to happen. And you said this idea that Twitter Musk is the price we have to pay for the SpaceX or Tesla Musk is just bullshit. And we need to stop playing into that game. I mean, we've done that for like 5,000 years now. Right? right? Are you not like exhausted? The, I'm exhausted. The male genius <laughs> and, you know, however terrible that person is and, and however many people have to suffer from their terrible behavior, we, we have to somehow accept it and, and even like, you know, revere them because supposedly they're giving so much genius to the world. Stop it. Like, you know, <laughs> we have to hold them accountable. It's it's just this whole this is so toxic. This this stupid myth of it's not just, you know, it's it's artists and everyone, right? Like we need to stop this. It's yeah. I, there was an Atlantic article that was like, you know, Twitter Musk is the price we pay for like brilliant uh Tesla Musk. I'm like, Come on. This is on. that needs to stop. <laughs> I mean, the guy made our car fart. It's not that brilliant. <laughs> I want to thank you for joining me today, Thomas. I always love talking to you, even if it's slightly distressing. Before you go, as a historian, does history teach us anything we can learn from or do right now that would help us in this time of uncertainty? Do you have any last thoughts for me? All right. So you know what? I'll start like <laughs> this. Um, okay. I think you don't need to know anything about history to understand that what is happening right now on the American right um, this anti-democratic radicalization of the, the, the Republican Party is dangerous. This scapegoating and demonization of vulnerable groups, of traditionally marginalized groups, um, that then directly leads to violence against them. The rise of right-wing political violence. I mean, think of the assault on Nancy Pelosi, which then turned into an assault on her husband. Um, right. Think of the assault on Club Q in, in Colorado Springs. It's directly tied to the escalating demonization of the quote-unquote left, and specifically of vulnerable groups, the LGBTQ community, trans people in particular. Because look, what else is supposed to happen if you keep telling your base these people are evil because they're groomers and pedophiles and they want to mutilate your children? Um, they are an acute threat to the moral fabric of the nation. And you're also telling them um, that the entire system is dominated by you know these radically anti-American forces, the Democratic Party, all the institutions. And so the solution cannot come from within the system, right? Then it's only logical and predictable that the solution has to come from outside the system through violence, right? So again, you don't need to know anything about history to understand, or you should be able to understand without ever having picked up a history book, that that is deranged and dangerous. Okay, right. Now, but if you do know something about history, okay, about the history of democracy and authoritarian threats to democracy, well, then you will see some very concerning echoes, right? History never repeats itself. It's not a loop. Um, it's not repetitive. But there are echoes. There are continuities. There are traditions. And I would like to point to maybe two moments in history that can be, I think, instructive. The first one is the interwar period, the 1930s specifically, when democracy was almost entirely wiped off the map in Europe within just a short span of time, replaced almost everywhere by right-wing authoritarian regimes, you know, military dictatorships, fascism, national socialism. So how did these right-wing authoritarian forces manage to bring democracy down in, sh in such a short span of time? It was not by convincing a majority of the people they never rise through majority support, just like the authoritarian forces in America today don't have majority support, right? Just numerically speaking. But it was because the center-right conservatives decided to make common cause with these right-wing extremists because they thought the quote-unquote left was a bigger, more immediate threat. So think of that every time former Attorney General Bill Barr says that he would still vote for Trump because the quote-unquote progressive agenda is the bigger threat. He's doing exactly, you know, what these conservatives did uh, when in the 1930s or whatever. 
they were making common cause with these extremists, even though they knew exactly that they were extremists. The second thing I'll say is the last thing I'll say is looking at U.S. history more specifically, every moment of racial and social progress or even just perceived, perceived racial and, and social progress has been followed by a significant white reactionary counter mobilization. The most dramatic example is what happened after America's first experiment with an interracial democracy after the Civil War in the so-called Reconstruction period, and which was followed by almost 100 years of sort of a reestablishment of white supremacy through violence and, you know, supposedly uh, um, race-neutral laws that were <laughs> like racially discriminatory, of course, in both intent and effect. That's the so-called Jim Crow order, right? And the takeaway from that it's not that progress is impossible or has never happened, but the takeaway should be that progress is not inevitable and it's never guaranteed. And the takeaway should be that reactionaries can actually succeed and have actually succeeded before in turning the clock back significantly and for a very long time. So it can happen here. History should tell us that at least, right? It has happened here and it is happening right now unless we stop it. Right. All right. Well, that's a good place to leave it. <laughs> we need to stop it, don't we? Progress is definitely not inevitable. Thank you, Thomas. I absolutely love speaking to you. I hope you'll come back again. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. So that was Thomas Zimmer reminding us that democracy, real egalitarian, multicultural, pluralistic democracy, where your vote counts and your voice is heard, where certain people don't rule the rest of us thanks to the privilege of their birth, is not promised to us. And it's not even what we have here in America. Our Declaration of Independence might talk about a country where all men are created equal, but it's actually something we have to choose to fight for. The far right knows exactly what they want, and they are working diligently towards it. History tells us that they don't need the majority to get it. They just need to convince enough people in the center that the left is worse for them to find their way to permanent rule. The truth of the matter is, our country is incredibly divided, and it's up to all of us every single one of us, to decide which way we want it to go. There's no middle ground here. No more excuses to be made. People must make a choice. Do you want to live in a country where only those deemed worthy have power and that power is retained through violence and coercion? Or do you believe in a country that takes work and effort, but where everyone has a place at the table and everyone's voice deserves to be heard? I need you to think about it. I want to thank Thomas for joining me today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PGF. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.